waiting for Sodom. Now two of the three visitors have reached Sodom and are at the gates of the city. So if you would, follow along with me, reading the whole of Genesis 19, 1 through 29. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are those men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, and brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out to the, of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life! Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. And it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to, 
he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abram went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. May God bless the reading of his holy word. When the angels arrive at Sodom, it is already evening. Lot is sitting at the, at the gate, which probably indicates that he is some sort of of official of the city, has an official position in Sodom. And Lot does not hesitate to invite the two men into his home. And his hospitality, it reminds us of the hospitality of Abraham. Lot is a good host. And his treatment of these men is one factor that distinguishes him as a man of righteousness. Do not underestimate the way he treats these visitors is very important. Lot is also very aware of the wickedness of his fellow citizens. The visitors make a suggestion to just kind of stay in the city uh, square. And Lot's like, no way, you do not want to do that. He understands the wickedness of the city in which he lives. And during dinner... The news had spread quickly enough of these two men that there is a mob surrounding the house. And we are, we are told in the text emphatically, all the people, to the last man, both young and old. So it's, it's, you, you have the idea, it's everyone, every man of the city is there. And the mob demands that they give these men over to them. And when we know from the book of Genesis that the word know in many contexts actually means sex, Adam, and Adam knew Eve, that that's an idiomatic expression, there is no question in this text that what we have going on here is homosexual gang rape. It is terrible. When you read this, you are supposed to be shocked. You are also supposed to be revolted. In fact, from the text that we read in Judges 19, that, that same reaction. You're just be like, oh, can't believe this. Well, you should not want to hear about it. Be thankful that the text does not go into great details. The fact that the entire city wants to participate in this activity makes it very clear that they are deserving of God's wrath. These crimes are so terrible that we, even if we don't have that highest standards ourselves, look at that and go, that's wrong. Those men deserve to be judged. 
Horrors like this occur in our world today. Possibly more often than we would like to admit. But imagine the entire population doing this. You don't call the police. You don't scream for help. There's no one there to help. And this wickedness of Sodom is set up as a paradigm over which all wickedness is to be judged. It is the intense and pervasive wickedness of Sodom that that says, yes, they should be judged. But it also presents to us some questions. Are we to conclude that only the most wicked will be judged by God? Are we to comfort ourselves that we will not be judged because we are not as bad as Sodom? Now, I understand, and you guys have been taught well, that, that we know that God is holy, and even, even a minor sin is enough to judge you to, to hell. We understand that, that any offense against the holiness of not God is deserving of his wrath. But I don't think that's the message that God wants us to get from this passage, or from his scripture as a whole. You see, I believe that what is being taught is that the wickedness and the evil of the men of Sodom lives in our hearts. I've said before that the seed of every evil lives in every heart. That's not easy to believe. We read of this atrocity and we rightly feel in our heart, I could never do that. That is terrible. And I'm very thankful you feel that way. But if you think that you could not ever stoop so low, you do not understand the corruption of your heart. And you do not understand the grace of God in your life. You see, only the grace of God has prevented you from following the sinfulness of your heart to such awful depths. You see, what people don't realize is that when we are judged to an eternal hell and God removes his powerful grace that prevents us from being as bad as we will be, we will look like the people of Sodom. Or even worse, if that's possible. But I'm telling you that this is not an easy thing to believe. I would argue that God spends hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, trying to convince his people of this truth. You see, God, we know, has chosen Abraham pulled him out, and he says, you're going to be my people, and I want you to teach your people how to be righteous. I want you to teach your people how to be different than Sodom. Fair enough. 
So it would be unthinkable, right, for one of Abraham's offspring to act like Sodom. Right? Wrong. Well, the reason why we read the difficult pass in Judges 19 is to help you see that what would happen at the time of, the, of Judges was that one tribe of God's people acts like Sodom. His people acts like Sodom. And then you might say, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. There's always a few bad apples in the, in the whole bushel, right? And so you might tend to think, well, yeah, those Benjamites. I'm of the tribe of Judah. But then you would also not understand from Jeremiah 23, 14, that when God casts his people into exile... Many, many years after the judges, hundreds of years after the judges, he's talking about the whole history of Israel, and he gets to the place where God casts his entire people out of the land, and Jeremiah says this, In the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me. Oh boy. Oh boy. Now, could God's grace have prevented his people from becoming like Sodom? I believe it could have. But God wants his people to know you are not better than Sodomites except by my grace. Is it not true that Romans 1 through 3 that says, There is no one who does good. Not one. We all are corrupt. And then, Jesus teaches this very lesson in the second scripture reading that we learn today. How did the Pharisee? In Luke 18, stand before God? I'm thankful that I'm not that bad. I'm good. And Jesus says, that man will not come into my presence because he will not be justified. Only the man who comes to me and says, save me, I am a sinner, can come into my presence. So I'm telling you today, when you hear of wickedness, and you, we hear it in the news all the time, the news is intent on telling you the shocking stories. And in some way, we can become dull to those shocking stories. But it is right to be shocked by evil. It is right when we, when we feel the atrocities of the world to say, oh, and cringe. That is a good thing. That is a sign of blessing in your heart. But do not conclude that your shockedness to that means that you couldn't be that. God does not grade on a curve. So why does God rescue Lot? There are two answers in the text. They're in verse 16 and verse 29. Look at verse 16. 
Um, the Lord being merciful to him. That's the statement. The Lord being merciful to him. And then in verse 29, God remembered Abraham. Those are the reasons. That's the reason why God saves Lot. 2 Peter 2 tells us that he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual contact of the conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now I'm going to tell you, you've just heard the story of Lot. He's not that impressive. I would not have described him as a righteous soul. But Peter can't be wrong. Peter's correct. Scripture, you accept that. It's Scripture. So there must have been God reaching down into Lot's heart and giving him new life, a new heart. Because the only way that you can truly hate wickedness is if you have a spark of righteousness within you. And that's there by God. But even though... This must be the case. We accept it by faith. Lot disappoints us. What does he do? He comes out. He talks to the men of the city. Tells them that their behavior is wicked. And at that very moment, offers to him, to the men, his own daughters. Now, at worst, Lot reflects an attitude that women are not much better than animals. I'm not convinced that's Lot's motivation. I wonder what's happening later on in Judges. But even if it's not, Lot hardly is a model to be emulated. Now, I think that it's the reaction of the men of the city to Lot's offer that convinces me that he wasn't truly wanting to offer his daughters, but was trying to expose to them how wicked their action was. You see, the the men of the city respond to Lot like he is a self-righteous judge. That's how they respond to him. And it's, this is not an exoneration of Lot in any way, but it, it does help me. You have to understand that all the men of the city are outside. Lot's daughters are betrothed to two men outside. So by telling them, hey, take these daughters, there should at least be two men in that, in that crowd saying, wait, you can't have my daughter, my wife, because they are betrothed to them. Yet those men are silent. The families of those men should have been, no, you shouldn't do this. And it should have exposed to them how wicked their hearts were. And it doesn't do that. I'm not trying to excuse Lot. I'm just saying that 
he's probably trying to craft some way to get out of this. It doesn't work. And it's the angels who pull Lot back in. But notice what the, that the angels say to him. Have you anyone else here? And it's very clear. Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else that you have in the city. Bring them out. And so Lot actually goes to these betrothed men, potential sons-in-laws, and he tells to them, guys, you got to get out of here. You don't understand what's going to happen. Now this is one of those areas where we look at a certain limited degree of blessing that there is just in being in a covenant family. Being connected to Lot gives these two men an offer of the gospel that the rest of the city does not get. There is a grace given to them. Now they respond by saying, you're joking. But they at least get that. That's grace. Many of our covenant kids get a similar warning. If there's a a message in our world that needs to be heard, it's this one. Very, very, very few people in our world take the threat of divine judgment seriously. It's our job to look foolish and tell them. With a broken heart, tell them. You have to flee. You have to flee to Christ or there's no hope. Let's continue on. Well, let me say one more thing. In judgment of those two men, they would rather have their sin and depart with their betrothed wives than go to God. Sad. Verse 15, the angels urge Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Oh, I can't, this is hard to imagine. The angels are there to save Lot. And they tell him, Look, Lot, if you don't get up and go, you're going to die with the city. We never do away with our responsibility. You are responsible to flee to Christ. Flee from sin, flee to Christ. It's always there. You can never say, oh, that's not important. God just saves who he wants to save. No, you have responsibility and it never leaves. It is God's sovereign intention to save Lot. And yet he tells Lot, if you don't flee, you are going to die. And I believe that with all my heart. And it makes the next statement shocking. But he lingered. Oh, boy. I don't know about you, but I read that, and I expected the very next words to be, and Lot perishes with Sodom. 
But that's not what happens. Why Lot lingers, we're not told. Maybe he still felt security in his house. Maybe the thought of the unknown made him hesitate. Maybe he was more attached to the sinful pleasures of Sodom than he realized. But how many of you, wanting to go to heaven, hold on to the things of this world? Are we not all slow in letting go of the sins of the flesh? But rather than bringing down the wrath, this is what he deserves. Lot deserves the displeasure of God. But rather than doing that, the angels pick him up and his family and take him out of the city. Why? We're told in the text, because the Lord was being merciful to him. Sovereign mercy. Would God have been just to leave him to die with the rest of the Sodomites? Yes, he would have. Was it because of Lot's righteousness and his great response of repentance that he gets out of the city? No, it is because the Lord was being merciful to him. I suspect that when we get to glory, there will not be one of us Not one of us who doesn't have a story of where we lingered and the sovereign mercy of God took us to glory. I know I'll have plenty. Do you understand how good it is that God is merciful to you? The fact that you are still here clinging to him, saying, Lord, I need you. That is his work of mercy in your heart. You should be praising the Lord for that mercy in your life. Is all your hope, without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. That's the only hope we have. But just in case, you might be tempted to presume Upon mercy. You know what to presume upon mercy is? Presume upon mercy is to say, oh yeah, God's going to give me mercy. So I can, I don't really have to, I don't have to flee. I don't have to take God's warnings seriously. He's going to love me. He's going to save me. Do what I want. Live the way I want. He's, I'm trusting in mercy alone. God hates that attitude. He hates his people to presume upon grace. And so I think he gives them another warning. He says to them, hey guys, you're out of the city now. Don't look back. Keep going. Keep your eyes fixed on the goal where you're heading. Don't look back. And Lot still lingers. I can't go all the way to the hills. Maybe just Zor's enough. I mean, it's at every step. It's like, Lot, what is your deal? Why can't you just go? And yet, God is again merciful to him. Aha! And here's Lot's wife setting up the stage. Well, Lot doesn't seem to be doing very well at all, so I guess it's not really important to take God's command seriously. guess I can presume that God will give me grace if I just take a look back. And what happens to her? 
turned to a pillar of salt. I don't, I don't know the difference between looking back and lingering. It's easy. It's easy for us to think that way. Oh, I'm I'm Lot. I'm not I'm not Lot's wife. But how do you know that? Our family went to the Titanic Museum in Pigeon Forge several years ago. It was a worthwhile experience. One of the ways that they bring you into the Titanic story is they tell you at the beginning, they give you a little card with the name of a passenger and a little description of who they were. And you go through the whole museum wondering if your passenger will live or die. And so it changes the whole perspective, right? Because when you and I read that, if you were to just read a passenger list of, okay, those died, you'd be like, who cares, you know, whatever, you know. But if you're walking through the story and you're saying, am I one of the ones that live or I'm one of the ones that die? Changes it. Do you read and, and, and go through the story of Sodom and Gomorrah assuming that you're Lot and that you're not Lot's wife? Or do you go through saying, am I Lot? Or am I his wife? See, there's lots of characters in the story, right? Townspeople, clearly under the wrath of God, unrepentant. Lot, clearly under the mercy of God. But what about everybody else? Are you Lot or are you Lot's wife? That's really the question. And this is really what Jesus tells us in the, in the Gospels when he says, hey, when Jesus comes back, one person will be ready to go, the other will turn around, and they'll be left. Right? That's the whole point of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Truth is a ridge line. If you think that simply being a little bit better than the people around you is the ground why you will be make you will make it to heaven, you are foolish. It's not by accident that in this story it ends with God remembered Abraham. Abraham is the covenant head, but ultimately Christ is our covenant head. The reason why any of you are saved is because God remembers Jesus Christ. That's it. And God is being merciful to you. That's it. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's my only hope. If you think anything otherwise... I think you'll be fooled on the day of judgment. If you're trusting in your own righteousness, you will go into the judgment and be contemned to an eternal hell. At the same time, there's people on the other side of the ridge saying, oh, I'm trusting in Jesus, I'm trusting in Jesus. It doesn't matter how I live. I can look back, I can do whatever I want. And he's saying, oh, no, you can't. Our hope is not in our repentance, 
But without a repentant heart, we are not ready to meet Jesus. Pursue Christ. Try to throw off the world. Repent of your sin. Turn from that. But do not think that that is what will get you to glory. God remembers Jesus. Because in the end, in the end, when we stand in glory, we will all say, the Lord has been merciful to me. Amen.